0: I'll be reading from the ESV Bible. Give you a few moments to find it. Please follow along as I read. Verse 19. Therefore brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from the evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fiery fire that would consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has burned the son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said for you had compassion on those in prison. You joyfully accepted the plunging of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. May God bless the reading of His.
1: Well, good morning, Crossbridge. I'm so privileged to be able to bring God's word to you this morning. Thank you for inviting me to do so. I really wish that I could be with you in person, but know that I have been praying for you before this day and will be praying for you this Sunday morning as well. Will you pray with me as we open up God's word together? Father, I come before you and we are thankful that you've given us a living word to be able to hear from you in and respond and worship and trust and obedience. Would you make our hearts good soil to receive your word and worship your son this morning. We pray all of this in his name. Amen. All right, well, you have been going through the book of Hebrews for quite some time now as a church in this sermon series called Jesus is Better. And if you've been able to keep up with the series, you'll know by now that Hebrews was written to an exhausted people, most likely Jewish Christians, who were worn down because of hardship and because of persecution that they were facing. And so they were tempted, therefore, to just give up on the faith, to throw in the towel, and you can, you can almost sense their weariness and their exhaustion just dripping from all the pores of the letter. It's like they're teetering on the edge of phoning it in. And chapter 2, the author exhorts them not to drift from the gospel message. In chapter 3, he tells them, don't, don't lose their original confidence. In chapter 4, he tells them, uh, go to God and get the help that you need. In chapter 6, he warns them starkly, uh, don't fall away from the faith in chapter 12 he says lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and run the race that's set before you if i were to summarize the whole thrust of the author of hebrews message it would be this keep going and if i were to add just one more clause on that it would be keep going because jesus is better and so the whole meat of the book from the beginning up until now as you've been going through has been the author making this case that as hard as things are, Jesus is worth enduring for because he's better than anything that you would want to revert back to. In the original reader's case, that would have been uh, most likely reverting back to the Old Covenant, reverting back to Judaism and all that came with it. And so really, in amazing detail, the author is making this case throughout the book that Jesus is better. He's a better redeemer, uh, providing a better redemption than they could ever imagine. And so he just runs through uh, this whole letter, comparing all the major figures and institutions of the Old Testament with Jesus, showing how Jesus is better than all of them. How he's a better prophet who's speaking this more lasting and eternal message with more authority behind it, even than the law, or how he's better than Moses and Joshua because he leads God's people into a rest that's far deeper than this promised land, and how Jesus is a better high priest because he can represent our case before God with sympathy on the one hand, but also he, uh, with a perfect sacrifice on the other, the sacrifice of himself that Uh, cleanses us once and for all. So he's saying Jesus is better. He's the best possible person you could ever want or have in your corner. Now, not many of us today in greater Boston, right, are facing the same uh, kind of temptation to give up, the same kind of persecution that these Christians in this book were facing. We read uh, in our passage just now that they even were having their Uh, uh, property plunder, that some of them were sent to jail. Not many of us today have faced anything near that. And yet at the same time, I think we can all say that this temptation not to endure, this temptation to throw in the towel, to revert back to anything less than fully clinging to Jesus and engaging with him as Lord over every aspect of our lives, whether that means literally disassociating with him or just going through the motions— uh, being a Christian in name only, this temptation to do this is still as strong as ever. I was having a conversation in the, uh, the lobby of our church just a few days ago with a, a great brother, a friend, another local pastor of a church here in Beverly, and uh, he asked me, how are you doing? And this is normally the kind of thing that I would respond, oh, I'm fine, you know, I'm good uh, to, and yet I just felt like that would be lying to say this. And so I had to be honest with him. I told him, man, I'm I'm tired. I feel like it's hard to keep going. And I unpacked a little bit of why, you know, just going on our second year of COVID, long-term COVID fatigue, lack of being able to meet together with the ease that we had gotten used to, you know, political polarization just in the wider church, cultural headwinds against us. And I asked, how are you doing? And he said, man, all the same things that you just said it's hard to keep going and our conversation there felt just like this little microcosm of honestly of conversations that i've been having with people in our church again and again that it is hard to endure feels hard to keep going it can feel like so much uh, around us is working against our desire against our ability to remain steadfast and to keep following jesus We see the statistics bearing us out as well, right? The number of people who uh, report deconstructing their faith, never to put it back together again, and to even leave the faith, that number is increasing. I read a survey about the number of pastors who have seriously considered leaving full-time vocational ministry uh, in the past year. 35% of Protestant pastors reported this. 46% of pastors under the age of 45 Even outside of the church, right, this general cultural mood that we're in right now is a feeling not of endurance, but of, I just want to give up. Uh, You might have heard the term great resignation. We're living in a time where more than ever people are just quitting their jobs and hoping to find new ones. If you're a millennial this morning, so if you're between the ages of 25 and 40, congratulations, you're a member of what one author calls the Burnout generations, this generation is characterized by just an utter sense of uh, lasting uh, burnout and exhaustion. And so all that goes to say, there is a lot working against this this need to endure, to keep going, that the author of Hebrews uh, is exhorting us to this morning. And so we share the Hebrews' need to endure. And yet, in the face of all this, how can we keep going? And so we're going to see, just in the next 20 minutes or so, uh, three things from the passage. The author is going to give us, first, he's going to give us a call to endure. What does it really look like to uh, keep going, to endure in the Christian life? We're going to unpack that a little bit. Second, we're going to consider the stakes of endurance. What is really at stake here in this call to endure? And then lastly, we're going to look at the hope of endurance, how that, and how that motivates us from the inside out to keep going, Following Jesus, so first this call to endure. Look with me, if you will, at verses uh, 19 to 25. These are really a turning point in the whole book, and so the meat of the argument about how Jesus is better is has really uh, passed now, and we're now at that so what moment. So the author, what he does is he pulls together these various strands of all that he's been arguing to help situate this call to endure in an environment. Of confidence. Look in verse 19, he says, therefore brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, and then in light of all this, he calls us to do three things. Basically, there's these three let us statements. Let us do this. Let us do this and let us do this. These three let us statements. says Because all this is true, because of this access that we have to God, he says, let us, verse 22, draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, For he who promised is faithful. And the third one, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. So what does endurance look like? What are the aspects of this call to endure? Well, first, it looks like engaging with God. This is the most important thing. It says, drawing near to him. We will never endure if we don't have true fellowship with God. And this is actually something that I find quite comforting uh, at the same time, quite encouraging. If you're someone like me who could be described as a driven person sometimes, or a type A person, or even if you're just a member of a kind of achievement-oriented community, It's really helpful to remember that the first thing God's calling us to do is just to draw near to him. If it's your instinct to say, you know, I'm exhausted, God, but what am I supposed to be doing for you next? Am I supposed to, you know, I'll do it. If you want me to keep serving in the Sunday school, I'll do it. If you want me to, you know, volunteer for that committee, even though I'm overstretched, I'll do it. And God's saying, no, 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 first step of endurance, just draw near to me. I want you. I want you to come to me and come with your doubts, come with your exhaustion, come with your fears. I know about them already. In fact, this exhortation to draw near, it's the exact same uh, word, the exact same command, the exact same phrase as chapter 4, verse 16, when uh, Hebrews says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And by the way, at that point, the whole reason why we're supposed to draw near is because it says we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. And so if we want to endure, we need to, to, to just draw near to him. We need communion with him. When we can do this trustingly. We can do it without a guilty conscience. It's been washed clean already. And so endurance involves intimacy. It involves fellowship with God. He wants us to come to him whatever state we're in. And so Crossbridge, are we? Are you making time for this? Are you making time to draw near to him, to abide with him in this kind of way? Sometimes when you feel like your back is against the wall, some of you have felt like that for two years now because of COVID, when you get in just an utterly exhausting time, uh, drawing near to God can almost feel like an indulgence, like Am I supposed to be doing this? I've already stretched in so many different directions. But let me tell you, it's not an indulgence. It is a lifeline. It is a necessity. Draw near to God is the first thing he's saying. He's also saying in the second let us statement, saying let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. This is about remaining publicly confident in him. Some scholars think that this phrase, this confession of our hope, refers to some kind of like formal creed or statement of faith, something that maybe people would have said uh, before being baptized. But, but more likely, this confession of our hope just refers to the, the, the public ways that we as Christians keep on proclaiming our message. And it's called a confession of our hope because it's, it's hope-filled. It's a future-oriented gospel. You see, a lot of times, right, when we're worn down, or we're experiencing even some any kind of opposition, the first thing we lose is our hope. Maybe we won't stop calling ourselves Christians. Maybe we'll st- still stay you know, within the uh, circle of the religious community. But we start to kind of lose our hope, right? We start to uh, whittle down our expectations we start to manage them, right? So we start saying, you know, we start hoping in lesser things. You know, as long as my kids stay out of trouble, that's enough in a time like this. It seems more manageable. As long as I can just stay healthy and my family's healthy, but we're being exhorted here, no, don't, don't whittle down your hope, cling to it, keep proclaiming it, keep meeting as a church, uh, keep, hold fast to the confession of our hope. And the reason that's given here is it says, because he who promised is faithful. You're not going to be put to shame. You're not going to be embarrassed in the end for having this hope, this hope that God's purposes will triumph, that his kingdom will expand throughout the earth as he promised, that heaven will come down to earth, that every sad thing will become untrue. All this is going to come to pass. He who promised is faithful. So the second uh, way that we endure is to hold fast our public hoping, our message of hope. And then the last thing, this last let us statement, and I love this one, is it's a reminder that endurance is a community project. He says this in verse 24, and let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So this third exhortation calls us to intentionally help one another endure, to spur one another on towards that. This author is reminding us we're in this together. And I love this call. He says, let us consider how to stir one another up. He's saying, put some real thought into it. Think about how to get one another going. Actually, the word for stir one another up here, it, it almost has a sense of provoke one another. Something I learned this week, it's the same word that's used in Acts chapter 15 of when Paul and Barnabas have a sharp disagreement. The best image I can think of to illustrate this is like if you've ever seen the videos of you know college football players or NFL players, um, on the, either on the sidelines or in the locker room before the game, and they're trying to get each other psyched up before a big matchup, and uh, one player will push another player, and the other player will push that player back, and the first one will push them back, and they start pushing each other to get each other psyched up. To, to, they're provoking one another in the good sense to go out and contend for a good cause. And so this is the sense that we're actually, this is the intensity with which we're being called Uh, stir one another up Uh, get one another going into this life of of love and good works and so Crossbridge, how can you stir one another up to love and good works how can you be doing this well for one it's just uh, there's some evidence here in the passage itself he says not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some obviously there's irony in me saying this. I'm giving this sermon over a video and we're in the middle of this, this COVID wave. And yet uh, as soon as we're able to do so, let me, let me say, uh, maybe I can say this a bit stronger, uh, not being your, your usual pastor. um, As soon as you are able, yes, take all necessary precautions. Yes. Care for the most vulnerable. Yes. uh, Be safe. Do all of that. And yet, Come to church in person. You need to be there to encourage one another. Your brothers, your sisters, they need you there if they're going to endure. They need you there. Even even the author of Hebrews acknowledges that a little bit of neglecting to meet together can can settle into a habit, he uses that word. And so we need to be together because this is where we can... Uh, notice the gifting in one another and speak into one another's lives with that. This is where we can uh, take aside a, a weary person and just pray for them in their illness. This is where we can uh, call out the way that someone blessed us for how they served on a Sunday morning. Consider how to stir one another up. Something I've just recently been starting to do is even as I drive to church in the morning, I'm thinking, uh, "Who's going to be there this morning? Who, who's ushering again?" Who, who's on the worship team this morning? Who's going to be preaching? And how? what might I say that's that's meaningful, that's not cliche, that would really call out a gifting in them? That would be able to build them up. Or if there's some something that I know that they're going through, would I be able to just speak into that season of their life? Would I be able to say to a, a, a young mother of, uh, of, of young kids, would I be able to say, hey, I know that this is exhausting. We've got three kids ourselves. I know that that Sometimes you feel like your work is overlooked, but God sees, and your investment's going to bear multiplying fruit. Or am I able to say to someone, hey, thank you for leading us in worship. I actually see you uh, growing in, in, your, in your presence up there and in gifts of leadership. These, these very things, these are going to just pump so much life into your brothers and your sisters. I've never met anyone who suffers from too much encouragement, literally. We could Pump so much more oxygen of encouragement into one another, and you probably already know this by experience already, right? You, you, when you give someone else an encouragement, it's like you almost forget about it soon after. But when someone gives you an encouragement or stirs you up, you remember that thing for weeks, or at least I do. Love this quote from uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He writes in his book Life Together. He talks about the how the word of encouragement, the gospel word that your brother or your sister gives you, how it's stronger and more effective than even what you know to be true in your heart. He says this, he says, The Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. And he, he needs him again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged. For by himself he cannot help himself without belying the truth the Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of his brother. His own heart is uncertain. His, his brother's is sure. And so this author gives us these threefold call to endure. And what does it look like, right? It looks like drawing near to God. It looks like remaining confident in our hope-filled message about him. And it looks like really engaging as a community, just stirring one another up, encouraging one another up. So you can do this, church. You can endure. We have this call to keep going, this call to endure. But next, what the author does is he, he reminds us, what are the stakes here? What are the, What's at stake with whether or not we endure? See, this is no small matter. Look, look at verse, down at verse 26 and 27. He says, For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Do you recognize that your endurance is a matter of life and death? Now, the sinning that the author is talking about here. He's talking specifically about the sin of, uh, of falling away, of, of disregarding the gospel, of turning our back on this free offer of grace we've been given. The next verses, 28 and 29, are going to make that clear. And the other key word here is deliberately. So you don't need to walk around with this hypersensitive uh, conscience of, wait, did I commit uh, a sin after I uh, was first converted to Jesus? Well, first of all, of course you did. He knew that in advance. And And, and second of all, We've been having a, the, the gospel says where our, our conscience is wiped clean. So you don't need to misapply this and say that, wait, wait, what? Am I in danger of this? But what he is saying is that if we come to spurn the gospel, to say either publicly or even in our hearts that, I don't know if this is for me after all, I don't know if all this is really going to work out, I don't know if this Christian life is the way that I want to go think I'm going to try it by myself. If that's what we say in our hearts, recognize that if this is the mindset we come to have, and we find ourselves persisting in it, just recognize the stakes of this choice. He says you're actively putting yourself opposed to God. He says there's no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries notice the the emotional intensity of the language here not just an expectation but a fearful expectation of judgment not just fire but a fury of fire not just burn but consume not just people who have fallen away but adversaries so he's pleading with us recognize the stakes recognize the degree to which this matters whether or not you endure and so he's super blunt here and super intense. N.T. Wright, in his commentary on this passage, says this. He says, It is absolutely basic to Christianity that there will come a time when the living God, the Creator, will bring his wise and just rule to bear fully and finally on the world. And on that day, as unanimous early tradition insists, those who willfully stand out against his rule Will live a, who live a life which scorns God's good intentions for his creation will ultimately face a punishment of destruction. Now you might be hearing this and saying, gosh, like this is so hard to stomach. And I can I I can understand that. Sometimes for me it is as well, hearing passages like this. You know, the part about draw near to me, I can resonate with that, but this thing about a God who's got a fury of fire and of judgment, like, God, it just seems so primitive. So, yeah, what is up with that? And yet I think in this, we need to recognize how in, how personal our endurance is to God. If I were to think of an analogy, think maybe you think of this analogy with me. For those of you uh, who are watching and who are married, do you care if your spouse stays faithful to you for the long haul? Well, of course you do, right? I mean, how many of you would ever say, you know, as long as we're married for the next 20 years, that's okay with me. Anything after that, if my spouse wants to be unfaithful, sleep around, that's fine. No, no, none of you would ever say that. Or how many of you would say, you know, as long as we're still married at the end of my life, that's fine. But if there are many bouts throughout where my wife or my husband is unfaithful and checks out other men or women. I guess that's fine with me. What can I expect? No, none of us would ever say that. None of us would think that. It feels wrong. It feels revolting, which is because we instinctively understand, right, that in the context of a covenant, of a committed marriage relationship, nothing less than consistent and enduring faithfulness is acceptable. That's how we express our love to one another. See, the Bible, as you know, describes... Uh, the church's relationship to Christ in these kind of terms, in these marital terms, in these covenant terms. In fact, it's the central metaphor for Jesus and the church's relationship. It's a marriage relationship. And so if you or anyone you've ever known have just felt the crushing heartbreak of betrayal or unfaithfulness in this area ratchet that up about 10,000 times and that still wouldn't even hold a candle to what it means to be unfaithful to God. Listen to the, the personal language in these verses that follow. The author writes, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and profaned the blood of the covenant, there's that covenant language, by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the spirit of grace. And so not enduring, not enduring with God, enduring in our faithfulness, it's like trampling over a lover. It's like shattering vows. It's like spitting on everything he did to bring us to himself and to form this relationship. That's why the stakes are so high. That's why it's such a big deal. See, the gospel, yes, It is all of grace. It is all of God's tender love for exhausted sinners. Yes, it is God doing all the work to make that offer completely free to us because he loves us. And yet turning away from it, that's a bigger deal than just passing up a good deal. That's a bigger deal than just getting tired and bowing out early. It is positive unfaithfulness to a bride. It's unfaithfulness to a lover. It's willingly choosing to put ourselves back into the only other category there is, which is being estranged from God. That's a scary place to be. Verse 30 and 31 says, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine. I will repay. That's a divine jealousy there. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so the application here, church, is just, do we think of it in these terms? Are we, is this what we naturally see as the stakes of our call to endure? As the stakes of whether or not we will remain faithful to Jesus over a lifetime? So we need to hear this warning We've heard this call to endure, right? We've heard this call to endure, and what it looks like. We know that it looks like, like uh, drawing near to God, like staying utterly confident in our hope, like helping one another do this. We've heard this warning about the stakes, it's life and death. And yet, honestly, here's the thing: we need more. If any of you have ever been exhausted and have been teetering on the edge of giving up, you know that just hearing a louder call to endure, as important as it is to hear, and hearing the stakes, as important as they are to hear, just hearing that is never enough to actually get you through the finish line. You need something to tangibly hope in. And so that's why the author finishes with the hope of endurance. See, in verses 39 through the end of the chapter, the author reminds us that this endurance that we're being called to, it's all worth it. It's worth it. He reminds us what we have to look forward to if we don't give up. To the original readers, he actually reminds them that this is something that had fueled their endurance in the past. And he tells them, remember those days earlier on. Look at verse 32. He says, But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. And so he's describing this time when earlier in their faith they came under this, this great persecution. And we don't know all the historical specifics and details of that. There's some details in the text. looks like they uh, were subject to public reproach, that some of them and their brothers and sisters had been imprisoned for their faith, even that their property had been taken advantage of, plundered, it says. We, do, we know some of the details. And yet, the author is reverting them back to this time to remind them how they completely leaned into it. Actually, the word endure in this case means Uh, to stand your ground on the field of battle. And then the word for uh, hard struggle, it's literally the word from which we get our word athletics or athlete today. It's an athletic term for like a, a, a contest. And so he's saying remember back to the first quarter of the game when you were just getting slaughtered by the other team and yet you stood your ground and you leaned in and you contended and you keep going remember back then and he says, and, re- and remember what was what you were thinking about, what was in your mind, what was in your heart back then. And he says, this is what he said. He says, verse 34, why were you able to do this? He says, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Why could you even go so far as, it's insane, joyfully accepting God the plundering of your property. Who does that? Since you knew, because you knew, that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. You've probably heard that this word better has been repeated again and again throughout Hebrew. It's actually in your sermon series title. And here he's saying you have a better hope, a better possession, to look forward to. Anything that you will face, come up against, lose in the path of endurance, in the path of enduring faithfulness to Jesus, you will gain that, and it will be better and more solid in eternity, in the new heavens and new earth. You will have everything there. We need to stretch we need to bend our imaginations to be even be able to imagine the outskirts of this. Think with this with me. In, in that time, we will experience being perfectly known and perfectly loved forever, totally secure in our identity and in our purpose. We will experience eternal belonging in a rich, intergenerational, multi-ethnic community of love where we will laugh And form all kinds of memories centered around God and new and create new traditions that glorify God and honor one another. At that time we're gonna possess an indestructible vigorous resurrection body full of life and energy and vigor and joy. We're gonna have perfect mental health at that time. We're gonna be able to do dignifying, meaningful work that really blesses others and makes a difference. We're going to have a beautiful world of art and music and architecture and poetry and writing to explore. We're going to see all of our longings for justice finally given full vent, full expression, God making everything right like it always should have been. And we are going to see, brothers and sisters, Jesus at the center of it all on his throne, reigning over, administering over all of it, and amazingly inviting us in to share that rule and that reign. This is is just part of the better and lasting possession, this inheritance that we have to look forward to. And the early Christians in Hebrews, they knew this, since they knew that they had a better possession and an abiding one. They could endure with anything. They could push through anything. They had this internal, uh, undimmed, constantly being renewed source of hope, just continually recharging them and recharging them and recharging them that they were able to go back to. And the author is reminding them, remember those times. And so can't you see, can't you see how if we truly believed this, if we knew that all of this was ours to possess, we could endure through anything right? What's a little bit of opposition? What's another year of COVID? I hope that doesn't happen, but what's another year? What are health struggles? What is loneliness? What is any of this? If we knew this possession that we have, we can remain confident in this. He says in verse 35, therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you've done the will of God, You may receive what is promised. There is a great promise waiting for us, brothers and sisters, and it is so worth enduring for. This will be the internal source compelling us for. This will be the internal sense of hope, and it's something outside of this world that nothing in this world can threaten or dim or hinder or take away. And so we live in a time that it is hard to endure. We can own that. We can resonate with that. We're almost finished with two years of COVID. Cannot believe it's been that long. We are not meeting in person this morning. We are in the middle of a great resignation. We have cultural headwinds against us, not to mention everything that I'm sure you're going through in your personal life. And yet we are called to endure, to hold, to draw near, to hold fast our confession of hope, to spur one another on in this journey with us. We are called to endure. We know the stakes. We know that they're high. It's nothing less than remaining faithful to God himself, our our covenant spouse, as it were. And yet we know this hope of endurance, that we have a better and a lasting possession ahead of us. And so my prayer for us is that we would be a people who are confident, and who do not lose our boasting in our hope. Will you pray with me this morning as we ask God to make this true of us? Father, we thank you that you have a son who you've given to us so graciously and that he is so worth enduring for. Lord, I pray that you would help us never to revert back to doing it alone, There is no life to be found there. But I pray that you would only help us press forward and do it together in the hope and confidence of Jesus. We pray all of this in his name. Amen.